I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we derish chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Derish Chai Experiment, the show where we seek to understand and extrapolate the undertext of scripture to discover just how it might apply to us today. Well, we are over the hump. Last week we finished the first half of the book of Numbers, and this week we begin the second half. Now I've said before that the book of Numbers is split into three sections, preparations for the wilderness, then there's in the wilderness, And then finally, there's preparations for taking the land. But as we see this week, the middle section of In the Wilderness could be split into two if one were so inclined. Those two parts being the initial journeys leading up to the rebellion of Korah, and then 38 years later in the final set of journeys leading to the east side of the Jordan. Regardless of how you split it, we find here in the midst of the journeys of the people a two-chapter break that we will begin today. Once again, the narrative is split by chapters that contain nothing but commands. And once again, these commands, they seem out of place, disjointed, disruptive of the narrative that we want to get back to. And it is in this that we find a bit of the wilderness experience for ourselves. What is it that we're coming up on in the narrative? Well, it's a 38-year break. 38 years of sitting in one place, not moving. 38 years of boring, day after day, living with the same old food and the same old people in the same old place. The narrative of the lives of Israel is interrupted with boredom. And once again, we find that the book of Numbers is sublime in its construction. The disjointed way that the book is related, reflecting the disjointed nature of the wilderness experience. The organization of the text giving us just a small sample of what the people who lived it would have experienced giving us just a small sample of what we can expect on our own wilderness journeys, because the wilderness is not only testing and rebellion and punishment and excitement. For a time, the wilderness is simple boredom and steadfast faith that Hashem will move you when the time is right. Until then, there is a process to engage in. You see, these times of boredom, these times between the times of great narrative, judgments, testing, and faith, are the time when the most important work of the wilderness is accomplished. What is it that happens during these 38 years of sitting that we don't really read about? The older generation passes away. The old man is put to death and a new man is raised up to take his place. The faithless, grumbling, fearful, prideful, and lustful man that was redeemed from Egypt is put to death. And the new, faithful, trustworthy, powerful warrior for Hashem is raised up in his place. And the boring time in the wilderness is the time for this work to be accomplished. And it is this time that is the time that new habits are formed. That faithful, daily, small obedience of attitude and action is trained into us. That absolute reliance on Hashem is finally accomplished. 
And that is what we will find reflected in this week's text in some ways. So let's turn to number 17 and read this week's Parsha, which is numbers 17 and 18. Numbers 17 and 18. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and take from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their father's houses, twelve rods, write each one's name on his rod, and write Aaron's name on the rod for Levi, for there is one rod for the head of each father's house. And ye shall then place them in the tent of appointment before the witness where I meet with you. And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose buds, and I shall rid myself of the grumblings of the children of Israel which they grumble against you. And Moshe spoke to the children of Israel, and all their leaders gave him a rod each, for each leader according to their father's houses, twelve rods, and the rod for Aaron was among the rods. So Moshe placed the rods before Hashem in the tent of witness. And it came to be on the next day that Moshe went into the tent of witness and saw that the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had budded and brought forth buds and blossomed and bore ripe almonds. And Moshe brought out all of the rods from before Hashem to all the children of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. And Hashem said to Moshe, Bring Aaron's rod back before the witness, to be kept as a sign against the rebels, so that you put an end to their grumblings against me, lest they die. And Moshe did as Hashem commanded him, so he did. And the children of Israel spoke to Moshe, saying, See, we shall die, we shall perish, we shall all perish. Anyone who comes near the dwelling place of Hashem dies. Shall we be consumed to die? And Hashem said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you are to bear the crookedness against the set-apart place, and you and your sons with you are to bear the crookedness against your priesthood. But bring with you your brothers of the tribe of Levi too, the tribe of your father, to join you and serve you, while you and your sons are with you before the tent of the witness. And they shall guard your charge and the duty of all the tent, but they do not come near the furnishings of the holy place and the altar, lest they die, both they and you. And they shall be joined with you and guard the duty of the tent of appointment for all the service of the tent. But a stranger does not come near you, and you shall guard the duty of the holy place and the duty of the altar, so that there shall be no more wrath on the children of Israel. And see, I myself have taken your brothers, the Levites, from the midst of the children of Israel, a gift to you given by Hashem to do the service of the tent of appointment. But you and your sons with you are to guard your priesthood for all matters at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I have given you the priesthood as a gift for service, but the stranger who comes near is put to death. And Hashem spoke to Aaron, And see, I myself have also given you the charge of my contributions, all the holy gifts of the children of Israel. I have given them to you for the anointing and to your sons as a law forever. This is yours of the most holy gifts from the fire, all of their offerings, all their grain offerings, and all their sin offerings, and all their guilt offerings, which they render to me, are most holy for you and your sons. Eat it in the most holy place. Every male eats it. It is holy to you. This also is yours, the contribution of their gift, with all their wave offerings of the children of Israel. I have given them to you, and your sons, and your daughters with you, as a law forever. Everyone who is clean in your house eats it. All the best of the oil, and all the best of the new wine and the grain, their first fruits which they give to Hashem, I have given them to you. The first fruits of all that is in their land which they bring to Hashem are yours. Everyone who is clean in your house eats it. All that is dedicated in Israel is yours. Everyone opening a womb of all flesh which they bring to Hashem, whether man or beast, is yours. But to ransom, you shall ransom the firstborn of man and the firstborn of the unclean beast you ransom. 
and ransom their ransomed ones when one month old according to your valuation, five shekels of silver according to the shekel of the holy place, which is twenty geras. But, but the firstborn of a cow or the firstborn of a sheep or firstborn of a goat you do not ransom, they are holy. Sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire for sweet fragrance to Hashem. And their flesh is yours, as the wave breast, and as the right thigh, it is yours. All the contribution of the holy gifts, which the children of Israel present to Hashem, I have given to you and your sons and your daughters with you as a law forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before Hashem, with you and your seed with you. And Hashem said to Aaron, You are not to have an inheritance in their land, nor have any portion in their midst. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. And see, I have given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the service which they are serving, the service of the tent of appointment. And let the children of Israel no more come near the tent of appointment, lest they bear sins and die. Because the Levites shall do the service of the tent of appointment, so they themselves bear their crookedness, a law forever throughout your generations that among the children of Israel they are to have no inheritance. But the tithes of the children of Israel, which they present as a contribution to Hashem, I have given to the Levites as an inheritance. That is why I have said to them, Among the children of Israel, they have no inheritance. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then you shall present a contribution of it to Hashem, a tenth of the tithe. And your contribution shall be reckoned to you as grain from the threshing floor and as filling from the winepress. Thus you also present a contribution unto Hashem for all your tithes which you receive from the children of Israel, and you shall give from it the contribution to Hashem, to Aaron the priest. And all your gifts you present every contribution due to Hashem from all the best of them, the set-apart part of them. And you shall say to them, When you have presented the best of it, then the rest shall be reckoned to the Levites as the yield of the threshing floor and as the yield of the winepress. And you shall eat it in any place, you and your households, for it is your reward for your service in the tent of appointment. And bear no sin because of it when you have presented the best of it, and do not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel, lest you die. Deresh High Experiment, Episode 108, Main Portion. Last chapter, things came to a head. A cross-section of the people who had been brought out of Egypt decided that the uncertainty and the difficulties that they had faced were not worth it. Serving this new, strange, and singular God, it cost too much. The changes that he was making to society were too radical, and the expectations that he placed on them, too heavy. And so, in their great human wisdom, they chose a leader for themselves to lead them back to Egypt, this land that they called a land of milk and honey. And, well, things didn't turn out so well for them. This replacement government of the people, by the people, and for the people was in direct opposition to the dictates that Hashem had already chosen for them. This new government was swallowed by the earth. This attempt to return to the worship practices that they had grown up with, even if these practices were directed to Hashem, were the firstborn, the elders, the powerful, and the honorable were the ones who were chosen as priests. This challenge was devoured by fire. And the people who witnessed this exchange, they may not have known all that was occurring. They may not have had the whole picture. All they saw was that these powerful men of honor, their friends and leaders, were destroyed when they confronted Moses. And so the accusation is made that Moses and Aaron had in fact killed the people of Hashem. 
Hashem had chosen these people after all. He had raised them up and accepted them as leaders in the community. Some had even gone through ceremonies that placed them in direct service to Hashem. And they had died. The only logical conclusion from their standpoint being that Moses had killed them. And again, as we saw last week, things didn't go so well for the people after this accusation was made. And so, an example had to be made. Something so spectacular that the people would not soon forget the lesson that was being brought forth. The lesson that happened last week, it didn't stick. The examples that were made of the rebels and their deaths, it was too vague, apparently, for the people to understand. The grumbling that occurred after the lesson proves the point. The example of the death of these men was not enough to convince the people that Moses and Aaron were indeed chosen by Hashem to lead the people. And so, another example had to be made. And this brings us to chapter 17. As chapter 17 opens, there is a Hebrew word that is used that has a depth of meaning that is missed in the English, but that helps us to identify the significance of what is occurring here. In verse 2, the word that is translated as rod or staff, it's the word mate. And this word, while meaning staff, it also bears the meaning of tribe. This is one of those words in the Hebrew that is interchangeable in its meaning, and the meaning is then determined by context and usage. But from this we discover a truth that bore a lot of significance in the ancient Near East. The staff was a symbol of power, specifically tribal power. The staff in tribal societies served the same purpose as the scepter in monarchies. So when each of the leaders of the tribes was asked to bring forth his staff and lend it to Moses for a night for this exercise, they were in essence turning over the symbol of their leadership of the tribe over to Moses. Now what promise could be made to prompt these men to make such a move? The promise is, one of you are going to be chosen to lead your brothers by Hashem. Now you see, it's commonly made out that the people did not trust Hashem to lead them. I've even stated this myself, and this is the root of what occurs. But the fact that this exercise brings to the forefront, especially in light of last week's rebellion, is not that the people didn't trust Hashem, so much as the people did not trust the leadership that had been chosen by Hashem. I mean, how could they be sure that Moses didn't seize this leadership position himself? How do we know that Aaron wasn't chosen as high priest simply because he's Moses' brother? Perhaps Hashem only uses him because Moses was the first to approach him, and Moses chose Aaron to centralize power in the hands of a few family members who will then rule everyone else. Nepotism is a popular way of approaching the world, especially in an honor-shame society, giving family members power or access or favorable treatment. Perhaps Hashem only uses Moses because no one else who was worthy has approached him yet. Perhaps if giving the chance, Hashem would choose another to lead, were the right man to make himself available, of course. But the example of the other day says that if you are unworthy and you approach Hashem, then you will be killed. And so sending the staff into the tent of Hashem, that seems the best option. You see, up to this point, in the eyes of the people, Hashem had not chosen Moses. Hashem had not chosen Aaron. Their appointment was not set in stone. And so this exercise, it gives them a chance. And so they allow their symbol of power to pass out of their hands and be placed in the tabernacle for a night. 
Finally, Hashem is being given the choice of who gets to lead. It is out of the hands of Moses and Aaron. And so they wait. And in the morning, the staves are retrieved from the tabernacle, and only one has changed in any way. Aaron's rod was chosen. For the first time, Hashem has publicly put his stamp of approval on the one that he has chosen to be his high priest. And this sign is so very definitely from him. What is it that happens to Aaron's rod? Well, it buds, it blossoms, and it bears ripe almonds. The dead stick came alive in the presence of Hashem, a sign from the God that brings dead things to life, a symbol of what happens to all who join themselves to him. Ephesians 2, 1-5 says it this way, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once lived in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, as also the rest." But Elohim, who is rich in compassion, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Messiah. By grace you have been saved. We were dead. But just as the staff that demonstrates the chosen one of Hashem came back to life, so too do we. This rod coming to life is a symbol of what is about to be done to Israel through their high priest. But there is more to the symbolism of this rod than just the dead being brought to life. The kind of life that is brought out of Aaron's staff is symbolic itself. For the past year, the people had been working on the articles of the tabernacle, and one of those articles in particular contained almond buds and blossoms. Exodus 25, 31-33 And you shall make a lampstand of clear gold. The lampstand is made of beaten work. Its base and its shaft, its cups, its ornamental knobs and blossoms are from it. And six branches shall come out from its side, three branches of the lampstand from one side, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other. Three cups made like almond flowers on one branch, with ornamental knobs and blossoms. And three cups made like almond flowers on the other branch, with ornamental knob and blossom. So for the six branches coming out of the lampstand. The almond tree, just as the olive tree, is in some way a symbol of Hashem. It's a symbol of leadership. Now, the almond tree is something that we only read of a few times in scriptures. There's here, there's in the description of the menorah, once uh, as a fruit that was sent to Pharaoh as a gift from Jacob's family when the sons returned the second time. Uh, once in Ecclesiastes, it's given as an example of the wonderful things that pass away. And then in two other places. In Genesis 30, Jacob takes rods of the almond tree and two others, and he puts stripes in their bark, and he puts them in the water of his sheep. A passage that may or may not speak to this exercise in some obscure ways. But the final place that we read of the almond branch is in the book of Jeremiah, and in this case, the symbol bears the same meaning. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 12. Now the word of Hashem came to me saying, before I formed you in the belly, I knew you. And before you came out of the womb, I did set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations and said, I, ah, master Hashem, see, I do not know how to speak for I am a youth. 
And Hashem said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, but go to all to whom I send you, and speak whatever I command you. Do not fear their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, declares Hashem. Then Hashem put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and Hashem said to me, See, I put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of Hashem came to me saying, What do you see, Yermiyahu? And I said, I see a branch of an almond tree. And Hashem said to me, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to do it. In this place, in the opening chapter of Jeremiah, Hashem gives his prophet a vision of an almond branch. Why? It's a sign that Jeremiah has indeed been chosen by Hashem as his prophet, that he has been placed over nations and kingdoms, that he was the one who was to go to kings and declare the word of Hashem. Now, the symbolism in what occurs here is so significant that it is as Hashem states, Numbers 17.10, And Hashem said to Moshe, Bring Aaron's rod back before the witness to be kept as a sign against the rebels, so that you put an end to their grumblings against me, lest they die. This symbol, after all of the death and the mayhem that had occurred before, after everything that had gone wrong and the people did not learn, the lessons, they were lost on them. But this symbol, the symbol of life, was the one that put an end to the grumbling of Israel. And we see an echo of the Messiah in this. All of the military power and the victories in the world could not save mankind. The Old Testament is a grand exploration of this. This type of power will never change the hearts of the rebellious. It's only an act of life. Life given when it is impossible that can bring about a change in our world that produces salvation and pierces the heart to the core. And the people, they finally realize their place in the truth of all that has occurred. They realize just how hopeless their case is before Hashem. And in verse 12 through 13, we find the fourth stage of grief being represented. Now, four weeks ago, we began this exploration on the stages of grief that are found here in the book of Numbers. And this week, the process completes itself. The grief of Israel began back in chapter 14 when Hashem pronounced his judgment that the people of this first generation were to die in the wilderness and they were to live out here for 40 years until that occurred. Now, the people mourned greatly, it says in chapter 14, verse 39, and in the very next verse, we find the stages of grief begin to take hold of Israel. And in their grief, they are led to make the greatest mistakes of their journey. For grief is a powerful motivator. It can lead people to make terrible choices and to set terrible courses of action into play. And grief begins with denial. The land has been taken away. We will not be able to win. Hashem has not led us into the promised land. <laughs> we'll see about that. And they pick up their weapons, and they rush the enemy that they had just so recently recoiled in fear from. Their grief over losing the promised land, leading them to take the action that their faith was unable to accomplish. And when they take the action out of denial that is fueled by grief, it leads to sin, and it leads to their death and defeat. 
And then the text takes a break from this exploration. Because this progression of grief, it's only seen in the narrative. In chapter 15, it's not a narrative chapter. So in chapter 16, we see the next two stages of grief represented. The second stage being anger. Korah, Datan, and Abiram, they react in anger at the leadership, or as they see it, the lack of leadership. And their anger is fueled by their grief, which then fuels the rebellion. And in number 16.3, we see that anger coming out. You have set yourself over the whole community, Moses. We are all holy. Who are you to put yourself in a position of leadership over us? You did not lead us where you told us that you were going to lead us. You did not deliver on your promises. And Hashem has not delivered on his promises. So there is a need for a change of leadership. And just after this, we find the third stage of grief, which is bargaining. Now, this particular stage is one that's characterized by a person justifying or rationalizing destructive action. A person will create a myth in their mind, or they'll use irrational reasoning as their justification for the actions that they're taking. And it's this that's found in Numbers 16, 13. You have brought us out of a land of milk and honey. You seek to kill us in the wilderness. You seek to seize total control over us. And it is this bargaining that leads the 250 elders of Israel to finally take the steps to replace Moses and Aaron as their leaders. The thoughts that had been there before, but there had never before been the motivation to act on them other than to grumble about it. But with grief as a motivator, once again, the people act out what is in their hearts to do. And it is this action that leads to the negative consequences once again. And so Hashem speaks into this grief, and he does the only thing that will get to them. He forces them to see that what they have done in their grief was in fact directed towards him and his chosen. And it is this stage of grief that a person begins to clearly, once again, see. And this clearness of sight and mind, it leads to the fourth stage of grief. Depression. Numbers 17, 12 through 13. And the children of Israel spoke to Moshe, saying, See, we shall die, we shall perish, we shall all perish. Anyone who comes near the dwelling place of Hashem dies. Shall we be consumed to die? Israel recognizes the truth of the matter, finally. The judgment that has been leveled at them, the changes to their society and culture, these things, they're here to stay. And depression sets in, because this generation, they see no hope. And indeed, there is no hope for this generation. They will not get to enter the land. They will not inherit the good. They have been cut off, and they will die in the wilderness. As long as their hope is only for themselves, then yeah, there's no hope. And depression consumes them. And then comes the final stage of grief. Now, this is a stage that is not explicitly described in the text, as were the previous stages. But this is a stage that is represented by chapter 18. And that stage is acceptance. Acceptance of the judgment in the wilderness. Acceptance of Aaron and the Levites as the servants of Hashem. Acceptance of the rules that have been spoken by Moses. Acceptance of everything that they have just so previously rebelled against. And so in chapter 18, we read of the duties of the priests and the Levites before Hashem and before the people. And then we read of the rewards of the priests for their service. 
And at the end of the chapter, it might seem like we're reading of the reward of the Levites, but it's deeper than that. Because here we read of the duties of the people to the Levites. The charge that Hashem gives to Israel to care for those whose only reward when they get to the land is what the people give them. So let's go through these and discuss each of these aspects of chapter 18. First, we read of the duties of the priests and Levites, and it begins with a warning. The sons of Aaron are to bear the, in my translation, it's the crookedness. In other translations, this is the word iniquity. In the Hebrew, it's the word avon. This is a word that is based on the Hebrew word ava, which means twisted or crooked. At its base, it means some warping of a thing that should be straight or upright. But this word, it also means the punishment for acting in a crooked or twisted way. We find throughout scripture that this is the tendency of God to allow people to live in the twisted consequences of their twisted actions. And that's what's being described here. Any iniquity that you allow to occur in the tabernacle and any iniquity that you allow to occur within the priesthood, you will bear that iniquity. You will live in the results of that iniquity as it is visited back on you. And so, in verse 2, it's not only the priests, but it is the Levites as well. All are to engage in protecting the sanctuary and the priesthood from iniquity. Everyone in the tribe of Levi is charged with taking on the duties of this new humanity to work and to keep this garden, as it were. Verse 4 and verse 7, the final of the only three places in Scripture where these words are found used together and in the same context. And the same words used to describe Adam's charge in regards to the Garden of Eden. This is nothing new. We've discussed it at least twice before, so let's continue on. The next item to be discussed is the reward for the priests. We have seen this information before as well. The priests, well, they get to eat of the sacrifices. They must be clean to do so, and the portions are to be eaten in clean places. They can share with their families, but any who eats of the offering must be clean before eating. In a bit of new information in this chapter, we discover in verse 12 through 13 that the first fruit offerings go to the priests as well. And all of the firstborn of beasts goes to the priests. When the firstborn lamb is given to Hashem, it is killed, and the meat goes to the priests. But anything that is ransom, man or beast, the price of the ransom goes to the priesthood. And in this portion, there's nothing really new. Again, we find a repeat of what has already been stated in other places in the Torah. And again, we're confounded by the nature of the book of Numbers. But there are several things going on in these repeats that we need to consider. First off, the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus have dealt primarily with the priesthood. We don't read much in these books about the rest of the Levites. But in the book of Numbers, the Levites have taken the center stage to a degree. For two chapters in the beginning of the book, we read of the Levites in two different ways that they were to be counted. In another chapter, we read of the ceremony for appointing the Levites to their duties. Last chapter, it was the Levites that led the rebellion against Moses and Aaron. These first two parts of the chapter 18 do provide two ways of addressing the Levites. The first part acts as a comparison to the priesthood. These are the things that the Levites are to do alongside the priesthood, the areas where their duties overlap with the priesthood. Now, sure, we've read these instructions before, but before the people were not really ready to hear the charge. They still had thoughts of self-elevation and leadership in their heads. 
Besides, uh, there were other things going on in the previous mention, such as the counting of the Levites for their service in the tabernacle, and so now there's a focus on what that service actually means. The second part of this chapter, again, while providing nothing new, it seems to be setting up a contrast for the rest of the chapter. This section is saying, this is what is the reward for the priests. The Levites, they don't get a part of this. But the rest of the chapter, the rest of the chapter outlines the reward for the Levites. So these first two sections, they create a compare and contrast scenario for the reader. A comparison of priest and Levite duties in regards to the tabernacle, and a contrast of reward for the priest and Levites in their duties. The other thing that's going on in this chapter is what I've already addressed, the psychological aspect of acceptance of the people of this new state of affairs. The status of the priests and the Levites have been established once and for all. And so now comes the final portion of their acceptance. The duties of the people to the Levites in their midst. And that brings us to the topic of tithing. Now we've encountered tithing only once before in the Torah in Leviticus 27. The very last thing that is described in the book is the tithe that is to be taken of everything that the land produces. We did also read of it also in Genesis 14 when Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Now, there are a few topics in the Torah observant movement that are more controversial than the tithe, and but frankly, there is nothing that I like teaching on less than the tithe, because it is such a controversial topic and because there are not a whole lot of answers in the Torah as to how it's to be practiced. I mean, is the tithe only to be the produce of the land, the first part of your animals? In an agrarian society, this made sense, but in a modern Western society where no one grows their own food, is the tithe no longer an issue? Now, to my mind, taking this stance seems like a mixture of splitting hairs and greed. It's putting the letter of the law above the spirit of the law, which, as Isaiah 28 states, is the path of stumbling. Or how about who is the tithe to be given to? There are no Levites in this day. There is no chosen tribe that serves in the tabernacle or temple. So should the tithe go to the local church? Should it go straight to the pastor? Should it go to the widow and the orphan? Or how many tithes are there to be? Because we find three kinds of tithes described in the Torah. There's the tithe of the Levites, as described here. There is a tithe for festival celebrations, as described in Deuteronomy 14. And there's a third-year tithe for poor, widow, and orphan, as also described in Deuteronomy 14. And not just how many tithes, but how are they to be split? Is it just 10% that's split three ways? Is it 20% of what you make that goes two ways? And then in the third year, the bit that you would have spent on yourself for the festival, you then give away to the poor. Is it 23.3%? For most years, it's 20%, but in the third year, an extra 10% is taken to give to the poor. If you spread that out over three years, you get 23 and a third percent. Or is it a full 30%? 10% of each of these others, and the third is just stored up to be doled out every three years. And why, oh, why doesn't the New Testament address the tithe at all? There is no repeated command for giving the tithe in the New Testament. In fact, many New Testament-only churches speak on tithing regularly, and yet the tithe is never once addressed in a command sort of way in the New Testament. And the final issue with speaking on tithing is that I myself would benefit from the giving of tithes in my local community. And call it pride, but I'm not a fan of asking for money from people. 
I hate it when others ask me for money, and so I don't like asking for money. When this happens, it feels as if I'm reducing my relationship to others to a simple business transaction, and I don't want my relationship with those who are part of my community to be simply business. As you can see, the tithe is a complicated subject, but it's one that in every case the tithe is mentioned, the Levite is included as the recipient of the tithe. So what does that mean for us today? Well, I'm not going to answer any of the questions that I brought up or even really address most of these issues that are present in this topic. I'm sorry. Instead, I'm going to address this topic obliquely as the authors of the New Testament have chosen to address this topic. Not from the topic of tithe and obligation, but rather from the aspect of giving of yourself to support your community and those whose work is to keep the community going. 1 Corinthians 9, 1-14, Paul says this, Am I not an emissary? Am I not free? Have I not seen Yeshua the Messiah our Master? Are you not my work in the Master? If to others I am not an emissary, I certainly am to you, for you are the seal of my office of the emissary and the Master. My defense to those who examine me is this, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a sister, a wife, as also the other emissaries and the brothers of the master and Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I have no right to refrain from working? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who shepherds a flock and does not feed of the milk of the flock? Do I say this as a man, or does not the Torah say the same thing too? For it has been written in the Torah of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Or does he say it because of us all? For this was written because of us, that he who plows should plow in expectation, and the thresher in expectation of sharing. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap material goods from you? If others share authority over you, should not rather we? But we have not used this authority, but we have put up with all, lest we hinder the gospel of Messiah. Do you not know that those serving in the holy place eat from the holy place, and those attending at the altar have the share of their offerings of the altar? So also the Master instituted that those announcing the gospel should live from the gospel. Did you catch that last verse? In some translations it says, So also the Lord commanded that those announcing the gospel should live from the gospel. Those who work for the good of all, those who spend their lives and livelihoods spreading the gospel. Verse 14 says that it was commanded by the master that they should make their living from this practice. And that is what is being described here in Numbers 18. Those who serve in the holy place have a share of the offerings of the holy place. And those who have no inheritance among the people, because rather than focusing on building their own kingdom, they are instead focused on building the kingdom of God. Those people deserve a reward for their work. Now, when I have brought this passage up in conversations, the reply has been, well, but Paul then goes on to say that he doesn't exercise this right for the sake of the gospel. And so the implication being, therefore, 
you should not exercise this right either. Two things. One, Paul calls it a right, but it is a right that he chooses to not make use of. And two, Paul was called without wife and children. He had few expenses and no mouths to feed but his own. And not all of us are in the same position. Many people who choose to dedicate themselves to the gospel today do so later in life, only once they have a wife and children to care for, and so they still have to care for them. But Paul had a profession, a job, they say. And the fact is that many who work for the gospel also work at odd jobs or even hold down a full or part-time job to support their families. And our modern society expects this to be the standard. A job to support the family, and then unpaid time to support the community. And the family suffers from lack of leadership and a missing parent from this arrangement. The fact of the matter is that you should be giving in some way. 10%, 20%, 30%, I'm not going to tell you how much. The fact is that while the New Testament never addresses the tithe as such, it does address giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 5-12, through it says, So I thought it necessary to appeal to the brothers to come to you in advance and to arrange your promised blessing beforehand. This is to be ready as a blessing and not as a greediness. And this, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and he who sows on blessing shall also reap on blessing. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not out of grief or of necessity. For God loves a joyous giver, and God is able to make all favor overflow towards you, that you, always having all that you need in every way, have plenty for every good work. As it has been written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness remains forever, and he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food shall supply and increase the seed that you have sown and increase the fruit of your righteousness, being enriched in every way for all simplicity, which works out thanksgiving to God through us, because the rendering of this service not only supplies the needs of the holy ones, but also is overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Too often the tithing is approached from the perspective of guilt-tripping others so that they will give. Or it's approached from the perspective of compulsion. God commands it, so you got to do it. Or it's approached from the perspective of, I'm in need, so please give to me. I'm not going to make these appeals. If you are not giving from a heart of generosity and cheerfully, then don't give. And frankly, how much you give, that's up to you. I'll tell you that both the New and the Old Testament speak of a blessing that comes as the result of giving. When you recognize that you have all that you need and more, and can allow money to pass through your fingers freely to those in need, you'll be blessed with more because it's being used properly. You're not storing it up for yourself. You're using it for the kingdom of God. When greed is conquered, when compulsion and guilt are laid to rest, when the only motivation that you have is a heart of cheer at the blessing that you are able to pass on to others, then you'll have more than you need. And in this is not only the path of life for yourself, 
but it's an opportunity to pass on life and blessing to others. So Derashchai, seek life in all that you do. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derashchai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.